it looks to me like the Monday morning budgeting meeting has just begun. Let's listen in. Shauna, Shauna, we can't hear you. You're a mute. Can you hear me now? Yes, Shauna, we can hear you now. I was just saying how I worked 50 hours this week. What? Only 50 hours? I worked 60 and stopped wearing pants to save time on getting dressed. 60 hours? <laughs> you guys are part-timers. I work 70 and I'm calling in while on vacation in Mexico. Hold on a second. I'm in Mexico too. Wait, is that you with the laptop at the bar? Jason, it's me, Jeff, on the other side of the pool. Over here! Yeah. Hey, since you're already there, can you order me a margarita? Extra salt on the rim, please. Preventing burnout in the workplace. It's what we're talking about today. This is the Insights at Work podcast. Let's dive in! Welcome to the Insights at Work podcast, the podcast that looks at what's happening in the HR world, takes your questions and studies the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. We tend to think of burnout as a problem we can solve with some yoga, maybe a meditation app, or a new health and wellness program. Sure, self-care is important, but is it really the answer? And who is really responsible for preventing burnout in the workplace? Well, we're going to talk about that today with one of North America's leading burnout experts. And that is Jennifer Moss. Jennifer and I have worked together before delivering an ADP masterclass where we looked into this very topic. I knew she was coming out with a new book about preventing burnout, and I asked her to come on the Insights at Work podcast. So, Jennifer, for those in the audience who may not know who you are, why don't you fill them in? Well, it's great to see you again, Jeff, and for us to have this conversation. I really enjoyed the ADP Masterclass. It was so fantastic to be part of that. Um, but essentially, you know, my work has been in you know, workplace expertise, really focusing on culture, developing well-being and wellness programming, but also consulting and strategizing with leaders on how to implement um, those strategies inside of the workplace. But, you know, I, I kind of joke that I've gone from being a happiness expert to an unhappiness expert because I have, you know, really focused on the happiness piece. But what I came to understand is that a lot of people are actually really suffering and mental health and the lack of supports around mental health are a big cause of burnout. And so uh, through that process of learning what is really causing unhappiness at work, it um, it brought me to the research. And so, of course, I would have never expected that the pandemic would have exacerbated this issue to, to quite this level. I started writing the book before the pandemic, but wow, we've really seen some huge shifts in, in even just the, the state of work. And so that's been my trajectory is sort of learning around, you know, and spending time around the happiness space, but now focusing on upstream interventions for burnout. Well, Jennifer, I'll refer to you today as a happiness expert. That's where all roads should go, right? <laughs> if we can solve for the chronic stress and we can prevent burnout, then hopefully we can have happier workplaces. I agree. Well, I just finished your book, The Burnout Epidemic, and it's a great read. You cover so much in it. Awesome research, fantastic real-life stories, and practical tips to identify, combat, and prevent burnout. But before we get to so many of your great insights, 
I wanted to ask you to share the meaning behind a term you reference in the first few pages of the book. Now, to be honest, I did read all 43 pages of the book, so don't think I or the insights at Crew Work skimped out on our research. So what was the definition that you were trying to get me to, to help you figure out here? The term that really stuck out to me is Kuroshi, a Japanese saying. Can you fill the listeners in on what Kuroshi is? The fact that Japan has a definition for death by overwork, which is Kuroshi, was shocking. And, uh, and the fact that it's such a prevalent issue that they have to define it, and they still have yet to really identify ways to fix it. They know that it means reducing overwork. It, they know that it means that you know, we have to stop expecting people to work 70, 80 hours a week. And yet we're still seeing increases of that um, over death by overwork um, occurring in Japan and, and elsewhere around the globe. I did read, I, I know the book is really 269 pages, not 40 pages. <laughs> I didn't want to correct you. <laughs> so Jennifer, do you think that we're experiencing a crisis right now? So you've named the book, The Burnout Epidemic. Is that where workers and workplaces find themselves right now? They do. I mean, you and I have had this conversation before just about how much it has been expanding and it's reaching all different parts of the globe right now. And before, um, before the pandemic, pre-pandemic, burnout was a really big problem. It contributed to 2.8 million deaths per year when specifically just overwork alone. And, you know, really great research has come out to share even that's contributed to the World Health Organization's uh, requirement that we, or, or strong recommendation that we don't work over 55 hours a week because it leads to heart disease and health problems. And yet it is a major catastrophic issue that's happening globally. Um, and when I did my research, we got data from 46 different countries that said basically burnout is universal. So, you know, capture all those, that data pre-pandemic, and then you have a global crisis. And then of course, those things collide and it's just expanded even further. So you give this great example in the book where workers bring canaries into a coal mine. And understandably, they get sick and you ask the reader to reflect on whether it's the canary's fault that they got sick or was it the mine worker's fault for bringing them into that unhealthy environment. Now, it made me think immediately of how we as workers prescribe to ourselves yoga or meditation apps to lessen the effects of burnout. But at the end of the day, shouldn't we be looking at the workplace to change the environment so we don't need those yoga sessions and those meditation apps in the first place. Absolutely. And I liken, you know, sort of this, uh, this concept of giving ice cream to people that need water. We need to be, um, you know, making sure that people don't fall in the, the river. We, instead of bailing them out. And that's exactly what's happening right now. People are sort of just swimming and drowning. And then we think, okay, we'll bail them out, but that's not really helping and it's, it's cyclical. So it never actually gets resolved. And so when the organization wraps their mind around that and says, okay, we are the cause uh, or we contribute to burnout, that's the only way that we're going to actually solve it for good. Now, you write in the book quite a bit about how if you don't look after the pebbles, they're going to turn into boulders. And I think a lot of my own aha moments when I really recognize, hey, you know what, it's time for a change, 
It happens when those pebbles become boulders and we finally make that decision in the moment to make a change. Well, you know, there's there's so many uh, examples just anecdotally that that I've learned from interviews and conversations. There's a really great one around the broken printer in the nurse's station where they're, um, you know, they're running down the hall constantly trying to print out patient information it's reducing in you know reducing effectiveness and efficiencies they're exhausted by the end of the day because not only can they just not do these simple tasks but they're frustrated and running down and they're all scrambling around this printer to try to print out this these patient you know documents and you know the thing is is it wasn't until you know, the CEO walked around and looked at some of these issues and wondered what was going on and wanted to fix morale because there was so much toxicity and people were frustrated. They were nitpicking with each other and there was sort of infighting where he realized that these, this simple, simple issue, you know, this broken down printer was causing people all of these stressors. It was about 150 bucks to fix, fix this stupid printer. And then, of course, all of the feedback was, you know, thank you so much for coming and listening to our problems. Thanks for walking around and caring about what was bothering us. Thanks for taking, um, you know, time out of your busy schedule. So it wasn't just that it was fixing the printer. It was, I'm listening to you. I care. You know, it develops trust. It makes you uh, feel heard. And that's all part of these little pebbles that seem innocuous. They just make a statement. It's like a big prime that says, I don't care about you. And that's what we need to adjust. And you only do that by actually, as senior leaders, connecting in with the people that are doing the work. Um, for you and representing your organization. Yeah, absolutely. Now you refer to the six causes of burnout. Let's just spend a little bit of time talking about what are the causes that really speak to you? Well, workload was always uh, the leading cause pre-pandemic. Now it is. It's just, there's a culture of overwork. I think even in your intro, which I love is this idea of you're macho and cool and awesome. If you're working on your vacay and you're, you know, you're calling in and that demonstrates how, how much you care about your job. And the unfortunate thing is that's celebrated. I mean, we used to see that just with life on site and some of these, you know, big campus organizations where the more you were there, the more you were seen, whether you were even productive or working or not, it was about being seen to demonstrate that you were working. Um, a lot of that sort of heroism around overwork has plagued so many interest industries, including you know healthcare, including finance and technology, and you know so many others. And I think that um, that has been the biggest one that we've seen this year just explode. Now, in regards to workload itself. What do you think about governments around the world trying to introduce the right to disconnect from work laws like they've done in France? I think having work-life boundaries is so critical. And we talk about work-life integration, we talk about work-life balance, but I think right now it's about work-life boundaries. So that piece needs to be mandated, protected. Uh, we need to make sure that there are institutional ways of thinking about it so that it's not necessarily always you know, at the manager level to make those discretions. It, it should be just part of what we, we think about as 
you know, as a responsible way, a corporate responsibility to manage people's burnout. Now, another one of the causes of burnout that you that you refer to is the perceived lack of control. And you identify a way that a team member can ensure that they've got a greater sense of control over what's happening and the input provided by the team. Now you talk about in the book, someone who's called the person with the black hat. So I love this this process and this isn't one that i you know came up with on my own it was actually based out of um research that was done when um, a consultant came into nasa after challenger and they were there to understand why there was a breakdown and um you know in that in this case it impacted people's lives you know it was a life or death issue and what they found was that the reason why there were these breakdowns in communication were that people didn't have a seat at the table or they didn't feel like they could speak up or if they spoke up that they would be put down and then their words didn't matter so we need to build psychological safety maybe it's not life or death in our organizations but it really does matter to to creating you know healthy culture good thought innovation and ideation where we need to have someone come in there and and I say the black hat but I think in in uh, the book I refer to it as the black robe you know be the dissenting opinion oh, be R it, RBG yeah it's it's the black hat I read the book Jennifer it's a black hat yes, the, so I I do say like if you want to you know take it up a notch put on the dissenting um, robe the the RBG role but we need to switch that around and have it so that we have um, everyone take a turn. So someone who might not feel comfortable playing, basically playing devil's advocate or playing the opposite role um, and or opposite opinion to what is being discussed inside of a ideation meeting, we need to give them that permission to be able to just be the opposing force in that conversation. That gives people the confidence to feel like that they can be seen and heard and their um, and their sentiments are accepted. One thing that I found really interesting with your research was that maybe it's time that rather than always recognizing people for the sales or the revenues or the units closed um, rather than celebrating that we celebrate something different so what is that different thing we could celebrate publicly with the team we should be celebrating when people are um, being human-centered, that when they are designing programs that really focus on empathy, um, that when they're showing that on a commitment to diversity and in inclusion in their behaviors, in their the way that they design their communication with their teams, the way that they lead, um, we should be celebrating people for taking time off without emailing while they're away. You know, we should celebrate when people go and take time for themselves and their families, you know, reverse this whole um, you're seen. I'm going to be excited that you're here. This is great that you're here. Make a point to share when someone actually takes time for themselves and does, does something that's healthy and contributes to that overall well-being culture. One of the things that we did uh, in the first six months of the pandemic was it was a company wide town hall. I was looking after our daughter at that time. She were, she was doing virtual school and it was like just a crazy, crazy time because I'm not a teacher. I'm not a chef. And so what I did for my presentation was a performance review of me. Like it was one star out of five that I was given pretty much for everything and just what a <laughs> terrible parent I was. And I just shared that with everyone else that, hey, 
You all are in the same. And you know what? Maybe, and it is okay sometimes to have them watch, let them watch TV during the day because you got to get work done. I, I love that. That vulnerability and humility piece. Everyone's saying, what can we do as leaders? What can we do, you know, to, to demonstrate that we care about burnout? And I keep saying, show them that you're human. Show them that you are going through the same things that they are all going through. Create some parity in your team and don't feel like you have to be stoic. You know, I know that there's this, and I've seen this where there's this expectation of stoicism and they broke away from that in their organizations. They were so afraid of breaking away from that. And they said it was like such freedom and my team loved me for it. And I'm having way better, all those other metrics, you know, that we measure all the time and celebrate, they were way better because I just let my guard down. And um, people just need to to take the, the next move around that right now. I think it's about, um, Really, it's at the end of the day, it's about being authentic. It is. And authenticity is such a, a critical skill and a special part of a culture. We just are so programmed to think that we have to wear hats in different environments. And, you know, I learned really early on when I was a tech um, founder and a female in this role. And I remember getting some advice from one woman that said, just never talk about your kids around these investors because you know, they'll diminish you or they won't take you seriously. And I'm like, hell no. You know, I am a proud mom. I think it is what makes me, uh, you know, more grounded. It's what makes me more fired up to do um, something that creates change in the world. And so I went totally against that in an environment where that was, you know, not to be discussed. And you're now seeing a lot of women just say, that's the holistic part of me. And the more that we get comfortable with that, the more we actually start to change that paradigm. Yeah, I agree. Now, is there a generation that's at the greatest risk of burnout? Does it affect one generation different than another? We're obviously seeing that, you know, vulnerable, group, vulnerable groups are more disproportionately impacted. Women over men are more likely to burn out. Um, we see a lot of compassion and empathy fatigue in those certain sectors that are more prone to burnout. Um, but then from a generational standpoint, Gen Z's and millennials are the most likely to burn out and they are the most burned out generation across the entire workforce right now. A lot of that just has to do with what we were talking about, just that lack of um, ability to have a They don't have autonomy in the same way as you would 10 years or 20 years into your career. And you also are, you know, dealing with being in an urban center, living alone. So you've got a isolation and loneliness, you know, you have this lack of fairness feeling because you are feeling like, you know, you aren't being seen in the same way, or maybe there's ageism. We did a study um, in the summer and that study showed that the it was the Gen Z generation that felt that their career was the one being limited the most. And when we looked more into it, what what it was at the end of the day was, I think it really was that they didn't have that face-to-face -face time with the senior leadership team. And that's why it was that generation that felt most uh, at risk and most vulnerable because our data also showed that the, uh, that the Gen Xers, me, were the most comfortable. Yeah, we're seeing the exact same thing where it's, you know, a real desire to get back there. And you think uh, in that group, there was sort of a misconception that in that group, they just want all the flexibility to be able to work from home, you know, permanently after this. But you're seeing actually a lot of those 
um, that group want to return to the office. And I think we also have this expectation that we sort of need to be moving up within every sort of 18 months to two years. We want to be able to show the upward mobility. And for a lot of folks this year, they haven't seen any of that. You know, they feel pretty stalled. Now, you wrote the book during the pandemic and you gathered research before the pandemic began and during the pandemic. How has COVID changed burnout in the workplace? Oh, astronomical, you know, mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting ways. And, uh, and mostly because we are dealing with an external macro stress that is limiting this, you know, what I've been writing about is a surge capacity. You know, surge capacity is something that you, you know, use mental sort of physical adaptive ways of dealing with emergencies. And you're only supposed to think and behave and feel that way for a very short amount of time. Even a natural disaster, a tornado or a hurricane or whatever that thing is, it hits fire, you know, it hits, and then you get into recovery. But we've been dealing with this surge capacity for 20 months and it's playing a huge toll on our ability to think clearly for us to make decisions, you know, the simple things that we would normally do every day. And so, you know, from that standpoint, we're also in strangely into high growth modes inside of large organizations right now. Every little piece of this puzzle has created the conditions for more burnout. Um, and so that's tough for leaders because they can't solve a pandemic, you know, they can't fix that. And that's really challenging for them. It's almost like, do you say no to growth or do you, you know, well, how do you fix this? And it's a very challenging issue. So how do you recognize the signs of burnout? Well, when you look at the big signs and, and I like to use Maslach and Leiter's definition and WHO's definition where it really is these three big signs of burnout and they show up in exhaustion. So just how fatigued you are every day at the end of the day. Do you feel like sort of like, you know, moving through sludge to get going in the morning? How demotivated are you? Do you feel like your brain is just almost frazzled by the end of the day? You're so tired. The frequency of feeling that every single week, we want to look at if you're feeling that say two to three times a week, you're on the path to, to burnout. Then also then disengagement. Do you feel sort of uh, mentally distanced from your job? Do you feel like you're not connected to the mission anymore? Do you wonder what you're doing, why you're doing it, why you started this whole thing in the first place, what your career even means anymore? That's um, And that's why we're seeing the great resignation because a lot of people are just saying, I'm gonna leave, I don't even wanna be in this career anymore. So you mentioned the great resignation because I'll give you a stat of a very recent ADP workplace insights survey. While salary and benefits, they've historically topped the list of incentives as number one for current and prospective employees. This survey found that Canadian workers now prioritize work-life balance over pay and benefits. No, and I've been seeing this across other surveys and there's been global surveys done. And what's so fascinating is, you know, working on the Global Happiness Council, we looked at, you know, Gallup world data. I mean, hundreds of thousands of data points and pay and compensation, just fair compensation has been the most important thing for people forever, always tops the list. And then it's other things underneath that. 
Now it's so different. I mean, that one survey that came out, the global came out, that was the global survey by Microsoft found that it was 4%, only 4% of those people leaving out of 41% of the global workforce that wants to resign, only 4% said it was compensation. So we're seeing this in the ADP data and other data. People don't, when you're faced with your mortality for 20 months, when you're dealing with the potential of sending your kids to an unsafe place every day or not knowing if you're being making the right or wrong decision or if your family member is going to get sick or you're going to make your own mother sick in your household. These are things that just fundamentally change us. And then that becomes important as the workplace understands that these fundamental shifts in who we are change the behavioral economics. And that means we have to start thinking about you know, what really matters to people because it's playing out in every single corner of our lives. Uh, you have a saying in the book and it's, you have me at five bucks and it's a saying that you use throughout the book. And you give this great example of a former workplace of yours and they invested in pool tables and ping pong tables and they really touted about having this unique culture. But at the end of the day, where there once might've been that unique culture that HR recruited you on, it was gone when you started working there and a new leadership had taken over and a new culture had been creative. Can you fill me in on the term why you have me at five bucks is so relevant? Yeah, you know, and the, the quote is from Reality Bites, which I love, and it's you and me and five bucks. And it's this idea that we, um, that's all we need. And a lot of organizations complicate it. And they think that they have to be aspirational. You know, if I tell you I'm going to have you know, these big ping pong tables and all of these great games rooms and things that you can do. We're going to have happy hour where you can drink beer on, you know, Thursday afternoons. You're going to attract, first of all, a certain type of person, but they're also going to be attracted to the expectation that you provided them, which means that you better service on those things. You can't just say we have all this fun. Oh, but I'm going to work you 70 hours a week so you can never engage in the fun. And when it really boils down, people just want to be heard. And that's why this, you know, these, this question that I suggest, or these set of three questions that I suggest are um, asked every single week is, how are you? And if you're a human-centered leader, your well-being of your team is the most fundamental. So this is the team, this is the type of team meeting that should never be downgraded. You know, downgrade all those other useless meetings, but don't downgrade this one where you say, how are you? Give me one high, one low from this week. What were some of the, and personal and professional, whatever you wanna talk about, totally personal, doesn't need to be a work thing. Can be like, what did you deal with in this, in this week? What was really awesome, what wasn't? And then the third thing that coworkers and bosses should be asking is, what can I do for you? Or what can we do for each other to make next week a little bit easier? It's usually a $5 solution or free. It's usually, you know, I could really get some help on this project, or I could use a little bit more resourcing on this, or I need some training on this because this technology is sort of running me for a loop, or I just need a person to, to listen to what I'm going through. You know what? I think I had that quote mixed up from another quote from Jerry Maguire. You had me at hello. <laughs> you had me at hello. Hello. <laughs> So thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> yes. So then Jennifer, well, I, I feel like, well, I should ask you, how are you? I love that you asked, Jeff. It's pub week and I launched my book on Tuesday. So it's been really exciting and surreal and seeing the book in hand 
has been wonderful. And I think that that's been, uh, I think a microcosm of this last two years, really high weeks where it's just, just awesome and epic. And then really crappy weeks that have been really tough. And sometimes that can change, even the volatility can change from the morning to the afternoon, you know, around this house. So I try to really enjoy these good weeks where things are going really great, but recognizing that it's, you know, we have to take advantage of it because it's fleeting right now. Your ping pong table story reminds me about how employers might attract employees with perks like paid for meals in the workplace, on-site gyms, unlimited vacations. And at the end of the day, these perks often end up being a double-edged sword. So how do these perks play into the burnout epidemic? That is such a great question. And, you know, the, the one chapter is sort of good intentions gone wrong, is this idea that we can't begrudge an employer for wanting to try to make the workplace fun and and exhilarating and legendary and um and that the well-being piece is is um, part of the culture i think it's just that we're we're getting it wrong we're not attacking really the the issue where we're not supporting people's well-being in the right places we should have all those things if you're a company that has lots of money you know feel free to have these vacations and unlimited whatever food on site those are all great perks but it's it's not really preventing the burnout. And so that's why when I hear these big declarations of mental health days off or a week off to deal with my burned out employees or to fix my burned out employees burnout, that's not helpful because it's great to have those as extras. A week off, great, do that. But don't say it's for your burnout employees because all you're going to do is send them back in the fire and they're going to continue to burn out. When I read your chapter and you talk about uh, the unlimited vacation, it really reminded me of something that we do every year uh, at ADP and it's called the time off tax. It's a, it's a figure, it appears to grow every year and it finds that Canadian workers spend an average of 17 hours of extra work before a vacation and an extra 17 hours on extra work after a vacation for a total time off tax of 34 hours. I, I love that you've uh, actually measured that because uh, there's there's lots of anecdotal you know conversations about what it requires for me to actually be away and what it means when I take a vacation and so I don't want to take a vacation why so many you know vacation days are left on the table every year it's because when I go back it's so tiring that I don't even feel rested and so again you know from a burnout standpoint having time off is really important we need to recover we need to get rest it's fundamentally healthy for us to take time and just re you know be able to enjoy our families or enjoy you know the rest of the world that's important but it can't come at the cost of something else through this call today you've like given such amazing tips some really great insight i've taken tons of notes is there anything impactful that we haven't covered that you want to share the only thing that i've been really thinking about lately is just you know, are we in a sort of Uber taxi moment when it comes to the workforce, this paradigm shifting, disruptive time? And I really do think we are because it's become a bottom line discussion now. But I think when the pendulum now sort of starts to swing to the middle, we'll actually be in a better place than we were before. And those companies that get on board and they make big decisions, big, bold decisions, like maybe 35 hour work week, 
they're going to be the, you know, the, they're going to have their Uber moment. And I think that, you know, others will be catching up uh, and it'll take a long time for them to get there. Yeah, I, th I think so too. So where can listeners get a hold of you? Well, my website, jennifer-moss.com and then LinkedIn. I'm always there, it seems like. Lots of discussions there. And I've been telling people, you know, you read the book, come and have conversations with me about it. I want to be accessible. So that's a great place to have conversations about the book with me. All right. You ready for one of my favorite parts of the podcast where I get to ask you your five favorite things? So I should go just r rhyme off all my five <laughs> favorite things now. There's all this exciting pressure. I'm like, do you get to ask me specifically? I'm going to ask you. No, but I have I a am... list. I have a list. You Here we do. Go. Okay, I do. Right Number here. one, what is your favorite tool to help you get things done? My calendar. I use it all the time to hack in space. I create space in my calendar and I also love my out of office. I use it all the time to give people a sense of where I'm at and to manage their expectations. <laughs> what is your favorite resource to go to for industry information? Oh, well, definitely your newsletter, Jeff. Um, <laughs> but I really do love um, Harvard Business Review. Obviously, I have uh, an affiliation there because they published the book and I've written a lot for them. But I find that a lot, they just have such really great insights and they focus a lot on human-centered leadership um, recommendations. All right. What is the first concert that you ever attended? It was... Um... Actually, I don't want to say Paul um, Simon. It was Paul Simon. I went um, to his tour of Graceland and I was only eight, I think, at the time, but it was pretty cool. What was your favorite concert that you've ever been to? Uh, you know what? I really loved um, Prince. Prince was incredible, especially because he would just sit for three and a half hours on stage and he would play and he didn't care. He didn't leave. And it would just be him and a few other people. And it's not, a, you, you would think Prince is just this big personality up on stage and no, it was like him playing, you know, solo with various instruments. And he's so talented. He's so talented. And he lived in Toronto. Yes. That's why I like him even better. All right. Last one. What is your favorite piece of advice that you'd give to a young professional just starting out? I follow this mantra a lot and it's how I prevent my own burnout is you can have anything, but you can't have everything. So it's about understanding that we want to have everything all the time. We have a hard time not getting excited by projects and wanting to be in every place at the same time. And we also have to realize too, that, um, you know, you make choices in your life all the time, all these tiny choices. And if you have the fundamental priorities of what really matters, your ethics, your morality, your family, what you want to make sure that you're not regretting on your deathbed. If you have those really figured out, then you know what your anything is and you're able to define what to say no to. Great insight to wrap the podcast up. As always, Jennifer Moss, from the very beginning, you had me at hello. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, here, you and me in five bucks. I think it was you and me in zero bucks, and I loved it. So thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank everyone for listening in. I know it's tough to find time to carve out for thought leadership, and I appreciate you, the listener, for making the time for us. Anything we can do to help ourselves get better at something 
is time well spent. On our next episode, we'll be talking with more HR experts about today's most important HR issues. I'm Jeff Livingston. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind. We'll see you soon on our next episode of ADP's Insights at Work.